difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Scott Tobias. Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky is on vacation this week, but one of these days we promise we'll get the whole band back together. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at a couple of unusual horror films, Jordan Peele's new film writing and directing debut, Get Out, and Wes Craven's 1991 oddity, The People Under the Stairs. Keith, last I checked, you grew up locked in a dank basement eating human flesh, so you're the perfect person to tell us about this week's pairing. Uh, Well, Keith, I can take this one, Tasha. Uh, Anyone who's seen the sketch comedy show Key and Peele should be pretty familiar with Jordan Peele's sense of humor and his fearlessness in dealing satirically with issues around race in America. He and comedy partner Keegan-Michael Key are both biracial, and their skits, including the famous Obama Anger Translator series, often deal with black culture, friendship, self-presentation, and even history. After the show ended its five-year run on Comedy Central, Key has turned up in a lot of films, but Peel has mostly kept a lower profile. Both men reunited for the 2016 comedy Keanu, which Peel co-wrote, but Peel has mostly stayed off-screen. Instead, he's been working on his directorial debut, Get Out, a horror film that deals nakedly and sometimes hilariously with race in America. Specifically, it explores the idea that self-satisfied, well-off white liberals might pose as much danger to people of color as more overt racists do. That idea feels subversive, but the film goes much, much further, touching knowledgeably on past horror films and directly on the public deaths of black victims like Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner. We considered pairing Get Out with one of the films that inspired it, but instead we settled on another horror film that openly addresses race, inequity, and its era. Wes Craven's 1991 satire, The People Under the Stairs, follows a 13-year-old black kid from a rundown ghetto into a sprawling, nightmarish house where his greedy white landlords keep a pack of cannibals locked up in the basement. It can be a clumsy political metaphor, but it certainly isn't shy. So this week, we'll look at both films' central metaphors, their comedy, their gore, and their scares, and we'll see how they all balance out against each other. We'll also throw Keith a ribcage if he behaves himself. (laughs) Horror movies often focus on whatever's worrying the culture they're made in, which is why there were so many scary movies about invading aliens made during the space race in the 1950s, and so many extreme cinema films about foreigners torturing helpless Americans in the aughts, after the scandal about Americans torturing prisoners in Iraq in 2003. Currently, with the Black Lives Matter movement dominating headlines, our first black president having just concluded an eight-year public seminar on race relations in America, and a long string of highly publicized deaths of unarmed black civilians, race is front and center on the American worry list. That makes it a particularly resonant time for Jordan Peele's horror debut, Get Out. But Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs was prompted by an entirely different era in American race relations. Eight years of Ronald Reagan's presidency led to a shrinking middle class, growing economic inequity, the Iran-Contra affair, and increasing poverty in the inner cities. Craven's earliest movies, The Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes, were inspired in part by the Vietnam War. But after the 1970s, he retreated from politically tinged horror and into movies as diverse as A Nightmare on Elm Street and The Serpent and the Rainbow. 
Frustration over Reagan and Bush, and specifically the launch of the first Gulf War, pushed him to write The People Under the Stairs, about a money-grubbing white couple, inspired by Ron and Nancy Reagan, who were obsessed with conservative fundamentalist values, but used them to oppress and abuse the poor and helpless. Into this environment comes a 13-year-old black kid named Fool, played by Brandon Adams. His mother is dying of a treatable cancer, and his family is being evicted from their disintegrating slum of a house. Money would fix both problems, but he doesn't have access to any until a friend of the family, played by Ving Rhames, invites him to help rob their selfish landlords. Inside the couple's home, they find a victimized yet idealized girl named Alice, a chaos agent named Roach who lives in the walls, and a basement full of pale, growling cannibals who've been shut up in the dark as the landlords have stolen them from their parents, mutilated them, and discarded them. The People Under the Stairs has a fair amount of shocks, ranging from a bloody evisceration scene to a great deal of human-on-dog fighting. But the cannibals in the basement aren't nearly as scary as they are socially relevant. They're meant to represent all the victims the Reagan elite swept under the rug, from poor people dismissed as welfare queens to AIDS patients dismissed as a limited minority who deserved their disease. The couple's callousness, judgmental attitudes, and wholesale embrace of murder is meant to be an indictment of the people who were running America at the time. And it's no coincidence that they're ultimately foiled by a ghetto dweller black kid with dreams of bettering himself through education and ambition, assuming he can survive his childhood. In every neighborhood, there is one house that adults whisper about and children cross the street to avoid. Now, Wes Craven, creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street, takes you inside. Something's in there. We gotta get out of here, Leroy. All sorts of rumors about what goes on in that house. The police never took it serious. She's been feeding that thing in between the walls again. I'm very, very tense about this. Ah! There must be another way out. Can't get out. No one ever has. What goes on in this house is a sin. Father's one sick mother, you know that? Actually, your mother's one sick mother, too. But what goes on under the stairs <laughs> is a nightmare. It is time to clean house! Come for the Wes Craven's The People. Under the Stairs. So guys, when The People Under the Stairs first came out, it, people immediately noticed that it was a, a satire of the Reagans, the Reagan era. The evil landlords, uh, played by Wendy Roby and Everett McGill, who were also a couple, uh, a horrible damaged couple on Twin Peaks, were immediately seen to be parodies of Ron and Nancy Reagan, although they're never named in the film. How did the politics play for you guys? I think they played pretty well. I have to say... Because there's now Trump-branded real estate in my head, uh, <laughs> it, it was hard not to think of his days as a property owner who kept black families from renting units. Is that something you ever thought about as well, or is it just me? Uh, you know, because it's hard not to think of you know real estate people kicking poor people out of their home for gentrification purposes. I mean, this is uh, as current now seeming as it as it was in '91, or at least it's still relevant. I guess the politics of it, I, and I think to a degree. People Under the Stairs just strips away the Reagan image. I mean, the Robesons are characters who may represent, you know, Ronald and Nancy Reagan, but all the politesse is gone. You know, they're aggressive and ugly. 
So these are not imitations, I guess, of these two figures. You you're, know? Yeah, you're perilously you... close to making me picture Trump in a skin tight leather gimp suit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, except for a few moments when when the police come up and then they're they're all all American, apple pie, polite. You know, yeah. I mean, it is. It's a little broad. Uh, it was a little broad in 91. It's a little broad now. But I, I think it plays. I think I actually liked it better now than when I watched it in 91 when I was maybe expecting the next great Wes Craven movie. And, and this is – you know, it didn't play for like that for me at the time. But uh, but no, I, I really – it's risen, really risen in estimation over the years. Uh, uh, as a film, I feel like it maybe gets a little – it kind of loops around the house a, a few too many times. Mm, um, but But uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting movie. I, I, I'm glad it's out there. Yeah, I'm surprised. It's just surprisingly long. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. for, for a film that really plot-wise is not that sophisticated. No, at at all. I mean, it is really just a trip through this this um, uh, through this this uh, house full of traps. I, one thing, um, you know, on the audio commentary for this, which has to be one of the last things Wes Craven recorded because it was came out in, on, on Blu-ray in 2015 with his audio commentary, and he died that year. But he talks about how uh, one of the sources was just always wanting to make something about a uh, house that was full of death traps. <laughs> so uh, that got got folded into some other ideas. But uh, definitely sometimes plays like, what can we do in this room? Yeah, I mean, it reminded me a great deal of Don't Breathe, uh, which yeah. you know just came out and also featured people trapped in a house and desperately trying to escape the people that they came to rob. And told uh, from the perspective of the protagonists are the uh, are the thieves as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking that exact same thing. Like, well, you know, it was, it was cool to pair it with wait until dark uh don't don't breathe but this is this seems like a more primary source even the thing about don't breathe though is by the end i felt like i had a pretty good sense of that house of the mm-hmm. space of that house and it didn't feel like we spent too much time returning to spaces in that house um, unless we were strictly in like a transition period or somebody was coming back to the limited number of exits and trying to to rework the exits in people under the stairs i feel like one of the reasons it seems redundant is i just never get a sense of the the space like either of the house or within the walls i don't think you can make a blueprint of this from the film i think it would be kind of crazy all over the place uh, non-euclidean or uh geometry involved in this and i mean i think that's a little deliberate like alice tells fool you know that roach was the only person who knew his way around the house and you can see how that is because none of the spaces seem to connect but as a result the fact that they just it feels like they kind of keep going in circles and i feel like that disorientation is maybe something that that west craven wants but it also means there's no sense of of progress or escalation i I also feel like we get the the dog as threat goes on a little too long Mm -hmm. a little a few too many times because that's something else that comes up really heavily in don't breathe and it's it's used in a to a limited degree and to great effect but here it was like all right they're gonna fight the dog again yeah, and, and sticking point for me as uh, uh, the dog always seemed kind of sweet uh, <laughs> for the most part. So uh, many dogs just seem sweet to you. Yeah, though. Well, a nice little, very, to, very handsome Rottweiler. You have to learn to hate. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was, the film also reminded me a little bit of like Home Alone in Reverse, mm. right? With with this time with you know it's a black child who's trying to get out of a foreign space rather than a white kid who's trying to protect his home. And a lot of the, you know, I mean, the film is full of slapstick comedy. You know, the house is a death trap. I mean, you've got the, the, the stairs that collapse and people sliding down the stairs. And, you know, it's it, it's kind of a action comedy in some respects, too, in addition to be a horror film. I mean, the kind of the signature Home Alone thing is bonking somebody in the head at the top of the stairs and they go down the stairs. And I mean, when I see people falling downstairs in non-back-breaking ways, 
in movies, I I end up with like SNL and, uh, you know, the Gerald Ford, uh, Chevy Chase falls down the staircase thing. So many people go tumbling down staircases so many times in this movie. And it's that same basement staircase. Yeah, works <laughs> I mean, every time. That thing's a hazard. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's a, it's turned into a slide a la The Simpsons, but mostly yeah, when it's we, just, let's take another dive down the staircase. In all our home improvements, we never consider adding a staircase that turns into a slide. Why not? It's, you know, you know it, it is, it is dangerous, as Scott said. I think it's mm. interesting that there's there is sort of an implication that the family has been like modifying the house uh, to create these death traps, but it seems like Roach has also been modifying the house to include I don't know what you'd call them life traps, uh, like <laughs> yeah. uh, not not just escape uh, escape passages, but like when the dog gets into the walls and he drops the floor out under the dog, and the dog goes for a like a 10 story slide and winds up and winds up safely and happily in the kitchen. It's like, that's probably not something that the homeowners set up. What do you make of the, the scene where fool hears the TV and, and finds the news like playing sort of the intro act to the Gulf war. I mean, I guess that just puts a pretty fine point on it. Doesn't it? That the only TV that we see is footage that we immediately recognize as Gulf war one, you know, it be, it's and it, and it really gets you back to, early West Craven. I mean, you talked about it in your intro. The last house on the left is, I mean, that is not explicit at all. And it's allusions to Vietnam. I think it was just the type of footage that we were seeing from Vietnam was something that he reacted to and wanted to convey somehow as a horror film. And so it sort of brings that back a little more. What I find interesting about the film satirically is that it, I think it has the most in common with The Hills Have Eyes. Because what's important about people on the stairs like the Hills Have Eyes is that the mutants who are billed as the threat are are themselves victims, right? You know, in Hills Have Eyes, the survivors of uh, nuclear testing and in uh, people on the stairs, they're the d- disenfranchised or being sort of walled into this home. I mean, those yeah, that, two films feel connected to me. Yeah, the titular people under the stairs are a threat for like one scene. Otherwise, they're just doing their symbolic purpose of uh, of being the oppressed under underclass. They're almost more like Romero zombies in some ways mm-hmm. than anything else. But, uh, they're even uh, kinder than Romero zombies. I mean, the end actually, this is a really weird comparison, but it ended up reminding me a lot of uh, Jafar Pahani's Offside, the end of that movie where you also have somebody like set free from uh, an oppressive condition and like wandering through a crowd that's celebrating about it around a series of explosions and the camera following them through the crowd. I mean, it's those two films are shot very much like each other. And that's just it's such a strange comparison to make to like this weirdo political horror movie. Yeah, that's a very strange final shot in this film. Like when when you have one of the people under the stairs just sort of going from screen right to screen left, uh, if I recall, and uh, mm-hmm. that's that's it. No one really acknowledges him in any way, even you know as strange a sight as it would be to see him. There's no acknowledgement that he's as he just sort of passes through into the night. I think the ending's one of the best scenes in the film too. I think it's definitely one of the most memorable shots. <laughs> it's, it goes kind of goes all in with the. Perhaps if we overturned our oppressors and took all their money, things would be better. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really shy away from that as a possibility. Yeah, both Get Out and this, I think, come to a point where if it was to be described to you, okay, there's this film about white people and they're rich and greedy, and all of the black people in this movie are oppressed and victimized, but kind of soulful and honest. And in the end, all the white people die and all the black people are happy. Like, that just sounds 
really nakedly over the top. And I think both of these movies kind of end up selling you on these ideas with emotion, uh, with specifically with the idea that, you know, Fool, this is a coming of age movie for Fool. You know, it's about him learning about the inequities that have shaped his world and finding out that there's really, there's no way around it. There's only one way to fight it. And that's pretty much with uh, with violent uprising. Yeah, I think it's effective too. I think the opening of the film, the whole tarot card thing, is a, a, a nice mood setting piece for this as well. Oh, it's amazing! It's a really weird way to start a movie in a way, hearing the characters and not seeing them, and being like walked through this kind of like occult process. That if you know if you haven't done tarot card readings, you may not be very familiar with the symbolism that they're dealing with. But she, there's a quote in here where she's talking about the fool card and how fool got his nickname and how the 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 way for the fool to escape his fate is to turn and walk into the sun and fool says oh well he, he'll get burned up and she says just the boy part get burned up the rest of him come out the other side of man and no one call him fool again and i was like oh that's exactly what happens in this movie and that's exactly what happens in get out like these are both movies about like passive, not politically aware black protagonists coming up against the inequity of the world and learning to become men. And the fact that they placed that statement at the beginning of the movie so so nakedly, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's meaningful without giving the game away entirely. It, it, you know, you, you kind of scratch your head a little bit at the the, the beginning and then uh, kind of see its purpose and its point later later in the film as the fool you know completes the journey that he's on in the movie. How do you guys feel about the performances, especially Roby and Miguel? I mean, those are such big performances. I think it's a lot of fun. And I think coming off Twin Peaks and seeing them do this kind of adds an extra layer to it as well. Um, in some ways, a more functional couple <laughs> than they were uh, in Twin Peaks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Roby was that big on Twin Peaks, but but Miguel we never saw go quite that big and it's a lot of it's a lot of fun i'm happy he, that david lynch i don't know if you follow this all like had to track him down like he didn't know where he, he basically retired from acting and and he enlisted fans to help track him down for the twin peaks reunion and he decided to come out of retirement just to play a uh, big ad again but uh getting off, off, off topic here but like i, I think smaller settler uh more nuanced performances would have uh, not worked for this film <laughs> no, I, I really do love both performances and the, the Robesons. And I, as I was saying, I think earlier, you know, these are not characters who act like Ronald and Nancy, even though I think that's a reference the film is embracing. But reveal their souls, I suppose, or reveal whatever the, the, the you know the rotten intent is behind you know the, this conservative, upstanding American couple. It gives you gives you something gross, which is again again brings me makes it seem so appropriate to the, to the Trump era because what is Trump but just conservative values or many conservative values unvarnished, like without without any of the squeaky clean values that you might get out of a Paul Ryan or something. You can look at them and say, oh, they seem like a nice family. But if you talk about legislation and you talk about uh, they're, they're, what they're really arguing for, uh, then, then you get a much uglier picture. And I like how this film just goes right to the ugly picture. One of the things when I was kind of reading up on Craven's history, I couldn't really find much with him talking about this film in specific, but I found him talking about Last House on the Left and how he never meant to be a political filmmaker. He never meant to to like draw that into his work. But when he was kind of trying to get his film career off the ground, uh, a friend of his said, you know, uh, write what you know. 
And what he knew was he grew up in a very conservative fundamentalist household. So he wove that into Last House on the Left. And for him, that movie is about the parents and how they have these very religious values. And then they they very rapidly like become the things that they've been fighting against when trauma affects them. And coming from that perspective and then looking at the overt fundamentalism that we keep seeing in the couple here, you know, the way they keep talking about hell and not, there's not really so much God in their religion. There's, there's just a lot of punishment for people who are bad and particularly people who've crossed them. But it's clear that they're very fire and brimstone fundamentalists and that they use that to the ends of, you know, deciding that they're kind of the chosen elite and that everybody else is disposable. Yeah, Craven has said that he drew on his childhood for this film as as well and, and his, his religious upbringing. I think you kind of mix that in, you know, his time growing up in the, in the 50s with what really uh, fundamentalism had become in the 80s, which was very, I mean, I mean, the, the couple goes around talking about Bertie and Hell a lot. That was very much the sentiment of a lot of right-wing fundamentalism in, in the 80s was, uh, yeah, do what we say or you'll burn in hell. And that is, uh, so again, it's, it's like what Scott was saying. It's like strip away all the niceties and this is what you're left with. So I, I think that's very much uh, part of the fabric of these characters. It would take something like see no evil, speak no evil, and what it may, and literalize it by what cutting off people's tongues and that sort of thing. Uh, did you, so did you all, I mean, all Keith and I got a chance to interview Wes Craven more than once, right? You, you just once for me. No, no, maybe it was more than once. Because uh, we, we were at the Scream yeah. 2 junket together. That's true. That was, uh, back in the day. Yeah, I talked to him after that some other time. Yeah, yeah. But he's he was one of the most thoughtful interview subjects that you could ever want. He was, he's, just, he's very prof- professorial. Um, his films are extremely thought through con- conceptually. And, you know, I think he means a lot of it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, he's an English literature professor before he made films, too. And, and it's very much it's very evident in, in the way he talked about his movies. Yeah. And I, I wanted to quote from Noel Murray's review. <laughs> did you did you look this one up? No, I read your uh, New Cult Canon yeah, write up and one. your Wes Craven interview, but I didn't oh. read Noel's review. So. Well, anyway, he was uh, he was talking about the origins of this film. And uh, Noel writes, uh, the writer director says the movie was inspired in part by a dream he had one night and in part by a news item he read about a seemingly respectable family who'd kept their children locked up for their entire lives. The feral kids were found when a neighbor called the police to report a pair of dark-skinned burglars breaking into the house. Craven savored the irony, a perceived threat to a placid, middle-class neighborhood leading to the discovery of a more insidious evil. That's great. That is great. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Good job, Noel. Uh, but that's and wow, fast... like, what a way to, to translate it and like to, to actually literalize the, the black invaders and then humanize them as well. Yeah, for sure. The other element of this film that I really feel needs to be mentioned is the money uh, and the gold and, and the state that, that that's in because it really... When you get to that room that has all the cash and gold and jewels and all that, it's not one of those things like in other movies where it's glistening and inviting and waiting for you to take away. It's just neglected. You know, it's like it's like they've been hoarding all of this money just out of sheer malice. You know, and their house, of course, is is you know doesn't look like the home of wealthy elite. It's just like they've been deliberately squirreling away this money for the sake of it, and it's just yeah, it's just it's just dumped in this room. It's, it's like dirty. Scrooge McDuck's nightmare. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Scrooge McDuck. Is, uh, that's a good reference. But, but I think it's important. I, I think that's kind money. of an important element. The way the money is is treated, what they're what they're going after, and, and also. Uh, is a contrast too between how money is is valued because because any tiny piece of that 
is literally life saving for for this kid's family, you know, and it keeps them from going out into the street. I mean, just it's just a piece of it, but the, the money to this to the Robesons is you know meaningless and I, and I you know I think I guess the fundamental issue that I have when I think about some of the people on the other side of the political spectrum for me is how, how much do you need? You know, how much do you really need? I mean, yeah. it comes out to, it comes out to Chinatown. The the question that, that Jack Gettys asked of uh, John Houston's character in, in Chinatown is like, you know, what do you, what can you buy with this? You yeah. know, I mean, <sighs> yeah. yeah. And then you get, I mean, this happens all the time. You get the scenes, scenes from real life, like, you know, Betsy DeVos, you know, a billionaire telling, you know, talking about, oh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's just so she wants to take lunches away right, from kids who right, can't afford lunch. Exactly, and I mean these these are often kids who, you know, their free school lunch is the most they're going to eat in that day. Yeah, we're, sh- uh, we're we're shedding all our Trump supporting listeners. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I'm not true. sorry. Anyway, we welcome listeners of all political leanings. We do. But we welcome them to be challenged by our politics. <laughs> we we welcome them to make sure that starving kids get a free lunch. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah. No, I, I agree with you completely because for me, like a lot of the politics just felt uh, a little over the top and a little forced. I mean, the the couple kind of is a, a manic parody of Ron and Nancy just didn't particularly connect for me. But that moment when Fool opens the door and, and sees all of that money, like literally filthy money, mm-hmm. uh, just like heaped up in random stacks and, and piles. And it's just so clear that they're not using it, but they don't want anybody else to have it. Mm-hmm. Like that does feel just really meaningful in terms of of what wealth and equity is, is the sense that my value is determined by how many piles of money I have, not by what I do with them, but just the fact that I have them somewhere in the house, somewhere in the back, somewhere in the back of my head. And the sense that you've you've earned it on the backs of others, you've earned it by cutting corners, and you've earned it by cheating people as well, which is often doesn't get mentioned. Uh, and uh, when uh, when talked about uh, this kind of inequity. Yeah, although there is something still – there's a line in there where when Fool's sister comes to the door and kind of takes them to task, the the business model that she describes doesn't quite seem to work. There's just, mm. there's something about it that's just like you guys represent all, all things bad and we're just going to pile all of those things up and not really figure out how they fit together. I don't know. There's just something about, you know, you charge us all triple rent until we can't pay and the, but that's fine because you want us to be kicked out. It's like – one or the other, like one one of these things makes sense. The other one makes sense in like a different economic model. Uh, I don't know. The whole thing just struck me as a little bit weird. Another thing I was sort of thinking about too was how long the country had been living under Republican rule at that point. Because mm-hmm. uh, it reminded me a bit. I'm reminded too of They Live, the John Carpenter film from 1989, which would have been two years before the people under the stairs and just what is the state of society at that point you know in both films you really do get disenfranchisement is such a major theme in both films of of people who are really on the fringes of 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 society you know quite literally and they live i mean you know you got people who are just you know on the you know what is the outskirts of la is it la that it's living in tent cities living in tent cities and that's that sort of thing and you just like that's what it's you know to be in the political wilderness for that long to not really have any kind of a voice or any kind of influence over over policy i mean this is this is the it's fascinating to see the horror genre's reaction to that and uh and where it dates the films in a really good way i think 
sorry, before we get emails, uh, the they live was 1988, Scott. So, sorry. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really yeah, we just fire up the email machine and they get lots of people. Uh... Actually, <laughs> okay, eight years is a while. You know, it's not nine years, but it's pretty close. So, what do you guys make of Alice? I, I there are points in the film where I I kind of see her as like a fairly disposable character who's just I mean she's there to be the you know the damsel in distress essentially like she's an innocent she's there to give fool some information she's there as a plot reason to get him back in the house but it isn't really until late in the film that she starts kind of evincing a personality of her own. Scott, I know you kind of had a problem with uh, Brandon Adams' the performance here. Did you like hers any better? Do you think she helped yeah, I balance I actually it? like Brandon Adams a little bit more this this time. Actually, the, the film in general, my, my uh, original piece, I think, was a little bit harder on the film than uh, I would be seeing it again, you know, a couple days ago. And I, I think she's fine. There's something significant, I guess, about where she is in the house and how they treat her and what their maybe their hopes are for her to be molded, I guess, into somebody who can you know represent their values in a way. I mean, uh, am I wrong about that or like? You, no, you're not wrong. I mean, it's it's fairly clear that the the woman expects her to be. I mean, they they literally dress her in white and freak out about her getting like any hint of anything on her clothes. Like she is set up as a as a virgin, and the fact that she associates with a black person with a black male person is something that even though he's like a little kid they both freak out about how she's besmirching herself and the man in particular goes into this whole thing about how she's a whore um, because they're both convinced that associating with a, a person who is black obviously means they're having sex and obviously means she's brought herself down in some way it's significant too i guess that that they have led her to believe that Mrs. Robinson is her Robinson is her mother, right? Uh, when in fact she's an orphan. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's clear whether she's an orphan or she was baby snatched or which... whatever. I mean, not or right, but not not part of the family, not a member of the family. Yes, she certainly uh, thinks they're her parents and finds out otherwise. Yeah. Scott, what's your objection to Adam's performance that he wasn't enough of a smooth criminal? Oh, is that do you have, do you have an interesting tid, tidbit no, for us? Because he's the kid from the smooth criminal video. Really? Yeah. That's yeah, right. How about that? And as long as I'm dishing out trivia here, A.J. Langer, who plays Alice, is now the Countess of Devon and lives in England. My gosh, yeah. really? Marry into royalty, and, and eventually you end up uh, the Countess of Devon, apparently. That's mm-hmm. a really strange detail. Yeah. I hope she's uh, having a better life than she's having in this movie. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does feel significant that like all of the people that you see in this movie, like none of them really went on to, to big film careers. There are not really familiar faces here unless you already have happen to be a twin. Peaks no, I think, you know, for people who are a little bit younger than us, Brandon Adams is a big deal because he was in The Sandlot and he was in the Mighty Ducks movies. So I think he was a uh, much more familiar face um, to people who are just a couple years younger than we are. That's fair. Speaking of kids' movies, um, reading just reactions to this film at the time, it's it's interesting to me how many people compared it to contemporaneous kids' movies or past kids' movies. I mean, it, it got comparisons to The Goonies, to, to mm. Treasure Island. There seemed to be almost a feeling that this was like a horror movie for kids. I'm wondering how that plays for I you. I think it's definitely not for kids. Um, no? <laughs> some really grotesque uh, violence. Right, right. What happens to Ving Rhames is, is pretty haunting. But I can see the good Goonies comparison, it does kind of play like the Goonies in some ways. You know, they're grotesque figures that are outdone by by sharp-witted kids. Uh, I I mentioned Home Alone. It was, it's got that, Mm -hmm. it's got a lot of those qualities to it, too. I mean, it's kind of a, it's a knockabout 
you know, action, you know, comedy entertainment in a way. I mean, it's got, it's really, it's crossing a lot of genre streams, I think. There's also just, I mean, early in the film, before things just kind of settle into a fairly serious rut, Fool has all these laugh lines. I, like, that, that mutt got teeth he ain't even used yet. Um, there's some even more colorful ones that I don't think we can say on anything even attempting to be a family podcast. But uh, there's there's quite a bit of humor to this film in the early going, at least. Like, does does any of that play for you as humor? I mean, did you find it funny? Not particularly, though I did appreciate that the film was trying to function as a broadly entertaining genre film. I think that's something that was craven for all of his braininess and professorial attitudes about his, his films, I think does concern himself with also you know delivering the goods. And um, The People on the Stairs is not one I would put in the top tier of Craven films, but I think he is kind of going forward and trying to create something that people will have a good time with. You know, one of the things that you said in your uh, write-up for the new Cole Cannon at the AV Club that I thought was interesting was that people look for political messages or metaphorical messages in horror films because it kind of helps when, – when films do have that content, it kind of helps justify – some of the more uh, grotesque things that they get up to. Mm-hmm. And I, I see what you're saying there, but it, it just makes me wonder if like, if for you, this movie is like political enough or messagey enough, you know, to justify all of the, like the human rib cages that we see getting gnawed on. I think so. I, I, but, I, but I'm usually pretty uh, forgiving as far as that, that goes. I just feel like, I mean, it was almost just a commentary as much on critical culture about, about our need to, particularly with genre films and particularly with genre films that go off into violent or sexual or pretty R-rated territory, to, you really feel like you need to attach some sort of larger meaning to the film in order for it to have value in and of itself would just be this purient thing. Yeah, I think horror fans can be a little defensive about uh, the genre in some ways. And I think horror kind of... Even in horror films that aren't consciously political like this, I think horror tends to attach itself to, as Tasha said, the, the fears of the age. But I think there's also sort of a horror fans' need to justify our prurient uh, pleasures. <laughs> it's a tradition that goes back to Beowulf, you know. Um, <laughs> so, so I think there's a little bit of that. Um, but, His graduate but, degree coming back. coming. <laughs> but I mean, with this, the politics are front and center. But I don't know, you can have a political horror film without the gore or with the gore. Um, and I think the, this film, I think you had to earn the gore. But I think the, the gore sits nicely besides the politics in this one. I mean, the, the Last House on the Left is a much harder film to yes. defend on that, that on that front. That is, a, that is a tough film to watch. Re, it's very tough, and and you do have to really reach to find that Vietnam comparison or metaphor there or illusions or whatever that he's trying to trying to make in that movie. I think pe- people on the stairs is you know completely on the surface, so we can feel super comfortable with it being an allegory, but. Uh, Last House on the Left is a much harder film to defend. Keith, you mentioned wanting to justify our prurient pleasures. Speaking of prurient pleasures, what do we make of the gimp suit? <laughs> like the fact that Miguel is running around like with guns at all times strikes me as just kind of feeding into like the Reagan era love of guns and kind of his cowboy image. 
that part all plays for me as kind of a part of the joke as a send up of Reagan. The two of them calling each other mommy and daddy is like specifically a Reagan, Ron and Nancy thing. The gimp suit, I'm not sure what that's about. Well, I think it's also the era of, of Jim Baker and Oral Roberts and all these sort of public uh, religious figures being undone by their private sexual scandals. So uh, you know, I think I think beyond being a form-fitting leather suit, it's never explicitly some kind of fetish he seems to be indulging in. It, do, it would have the practical purpose of working as armor, I suppose, but uh, it's obviously a fetishistic outfit that was actually acquired from a, a, a creator of leather suits for people of uh, certain sexual inclinations uh, per, per Craven. But yeah, <laughs> I think it, you do get that kind of sexual image thrown into the mix with this this uh, holier-than-thou figure. But he's also, it's very clear that Nancy is the one that wears the pants in that relationship and that Ron is kind of her dopey servant who mm-hmm. she keeps sending out on, on missions. I can't help but wonder if the leather suit is sort of meant to play into that image. It just, it doesn't quite cohere for me, I guess, except as a comedy image. I mean, as a comedy image, it works much like the gimp suit in Pulp Fiction, just kind of as a visual gag. It's also a little horrifying because you can't scary. see his face. I, it's I creepy. It a little scary. Yeah. yeah. Anytime you mask somebody, it creates a sort of disturbing uh, undertones. And that's a, but uh, as far as the other thing goes, I mean, the uh, of her being in charge, uh, I think, you know, Reagan certainly had that reputation of being sort of empty-headed and manipulated by other other people, and not not being uh, the great intellect, but more the uh, mouthpiece, the charismatic mouthpiece for yeah. for someone else's agenda. Deserved or not deserved, who knows? But you know, Nancy Reagan's astrologer did at least have some sort of influence on on uh, White House policy at times. <laughs> Good times. Well, let's close this out by talking a little more about Wes Craven, Scott. I understand you're just a general fan of his work. How do you see this working into his filmography? Like, does this represent any particular movement or moment for you? Yeah, we already talked about a little bit of films like, you know, he's done plenty of satirical horror films, Last House on the Left. Hills High Eyes is, to me, the most important link to People Under the Stairs. And then, uh, but I think he has that impulse to offer some kind of commentary, too. You see that in the Scream movies. There's a commentary, not, not necessarily social commentary, but certainly a commentary on the genre and what we understand about the genre and how it works and that sort of thing. So I think he's somebody who likes to be brainy and pick things apart. And and this is him following that impulse. But I think there's a genuine anger in this film, um, a working out of, I guess, 11 years of resentment over Republican rule that really comes through in this film that makes it kind of unique, I guess, among his other films. Remind me how much I miss him. I mean, you know, Craven was not everything worked, but he was a reliable source of, of smart thoughtful, sometimes politically engaged horror movies. I think stylistically, he was someone who got consistently better as a filmmaker over the years. And this is the action scenes in this are aren't exquisitely choreographed, but they, they tend to be interesting. But I feel like by Scream and especially like Red Eye toward the end of his career, yeah. he was really turned into a fine a I don't think stylist. he made a better film on a, just a filmmaking level. I think Red Eye is mm-hmm. is just a model of 90-minute. Uh, it's a very lean oh, movie. Yeah. It's the leanest. It's, it's terrific. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And then the last two films, um, My Soul to Take and, and Scream 4, are a little... 
little troubled. And, and you know, there, there were misfires. There's your, your vampires in Brooklyn's are, are yeah. in there as well. But what, uh, Wes Craven film was something to look forward to. Well, all of that makes this a particularly good film of his to be discussing, I think. Uh, I mean, in addition to the, 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 like the racial angle and the social angle, just it seems like it came at a, an interesting time for him. Um, and it's very interesting to see kind of his like rougher earlier work when we're so familiar with some of that like totter later work. Uh, We'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode. In our last episode, we talked over a pair of movies that reinvented Batman in two different ways. Tim Burton's 1989 drama rescued Batman from the era where he was a camp comedy joke. And Chris McKay's new The Lego Batman movie takes him back into comedy, acknowledging 60 plus years of character history and playing around with the grim and gritty way he's portrayed today. We've gotten a few letters about those podcasts, but we wanted to focus on one in particular because it made so many different interesting points. Uh, Keith, can you kick us off? Sure. Robert from Milwaukee writes... I find the 1989 Batman a particularly interesting blockbuster, as it's one of the first pre-sold blockbusters of the modern era, but it's also a film that's distinctive and represents the eccentricities of its director. It's no coincidence that Michael Keaton could have been cast as the Joker instead. That's a particularly Burton touch that I don't think many directors of the time would have gone for. It would have been very easy to go with a stolid, square-jawed, unknown as Batman, but instead Burton cast a particularly manic comedian and then asked him to be repressed and depressed. It's a bit of meta-commentary from Burton, as he's telling the audience that there's something wrong with what we normally expect from Keaton, and which we only see sneak out occasionally, particularly when Keaton asks the Joker if he wants to get nuts. The mystery for many in the audience is getting to what really motivates the character. That mystery structure to the screenplay also separates it from many of the superhero films that came after that explore the hero's origin in a straight line from A to B to C. Okay, I'm just fascinated by the idea of Michael Keaton playing the Joker in 1989 Batman instead of Batman. Oh, he would have been good. He would have been good. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy Nicholson's performance, but boy, I think, I mean, it wouldn't have been that. It maybe just would have been a different twist on Beetlejuice, and I, I, I'd i be super happy to see that. What if we cast Jack Nicholson as Batman? <laughs> The, that would be good. I mean, we talked about the slowness of uh, Batman's uh, movements. That would be perfectly fine for an actor of uh, Jack Nicholson's age and or, stature at that time. He well, kind of like how they used to say top dog, underdog, where the actors would switch roles each each night. Maybe you could do it scene to scene with. Uh, <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was uh, Nicholson was kind of bottom heavy by that time. There's that that shot where he like turns around and, and waggles his ass at yes. Batman, and he's got some junk in his trunk. Like I think it would be a little hard <laughs> poor, to to poor Jack Nicholson. <laughs> screen legend being talked why, about why, in this way. Why are you body shaming? Oh Jack gosh, Nicholson. I'm sorry. Am I am I offending you by talking about the physical body of an actor? Heaven forfend that anybody ever do that. Sorry, a hundred years of talking about women on screen. Um, but yeah, it's just it's difficult to imagine him poured into a latex suit and coming across as a bad guy. But like, I feel like he could have pulled off the the famous Batman growl possibly better than anybody we've had play the character in live action. I kind of actually want to hear that. I mean, I wasn't on the podcast, but Batman is just a tough role to play for anybody. Many have tried. Most have failed. <laughs> yeah, I think you need someone a little cracked. Uh, I think Christian Bale got a, got a little bit of I'm a broken person inside quality. I'm just going to go through and, and rewatch all Batman movies, imagining what would happen if the two, like, the if the villain and, and the whoever's playing Batman were swapped. Right? Two sides of the same coin, right, guys? 
Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of which, uh, actually, that gets us to the the later part of this letter. Um, the letter hit, hit a lot of other points. Uh, there was reference to Citizen Kane and things about uh, like the fascist undertones of superheroes. <laughs> um, the whole thing's posted over on our Facebook, uh, and I would like to see people come engage with it. But there is another part of that letter I thought was particularly interesting. Um, well, Scott, like a, this is like the Unabomber. This is this is uh, epic. <laughs> uh, so so later in that same letter uh robert writes i do agree that the joker killing batman's parents seems to make the world smaller especially as the movie is otherwise fairly faithful to the comics canon with much of the first act functioning as a loose adaptation of detective comics number 27 the case of the chemical syndicate which features batman taking out two thugs on a rooftop and climaxes with him dropping the story's villain into a vat of acid in a chemical factory but maybe that's a function of trying to tell one story instead of setting up a franchise for unlimited continuing adventures. Batman discovering that the Joker killed his parents seems to give emotional shape to the story, as Batman is fairly traditional in his actions before the apartment scene, and afterwards he blows his top and turns murderous. It may give the story a bit of a familiar revenge narrative, but perhaps it's worth considering that the common criticism of many modern Marvel films is that they have a villain problem, quote-unquote where there turns out to be no great emotional stakes to the hero's relationship to his villain. I think that that's an interesting thought. I, I like I come back to Zack Snyder's adaptation of Watchmen and how he changed the ending of that to get rid of uh, the magic space squid and how much of a departure that felt like. But how he also he did the same kind of like small world thing where he he ended up making that ending seem smaller, but also made the film come full circle as opposed to just kind of tearing off into a random nowhere. And I think that that's sort of the case here. Like Burton is trying to make it come full circle, is trying to make a meaningful connection there. It's just for me, it makes it makes the world, as we kind of said at the time, too small. But I, I mean, I think bringing in the complaint that people have about Marvel films does make an interesting point. That's the best argument for the direction that film takes that I've I've heard. Yeah, it's just it reads as just too neat to me. I mean, is there a point to to Batman having an emotional connection to the villain? Um, you missed out on this podcast. Now's your chance to to, is to there show a, all your bat thoughts. My bat thoughts. Yeah. I didn't really. I don't really have a, a strong opinion on that. But but I think it's you know I, I think it's powerful to hear that connection. You know, with the you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight and having that play in um, Bruce Wayne's head. But don't you think it's more powerful? To have Batman not know who kills his parents, and it's sort of this generalized obsession with crime rather than against one one particular person. That sounds like you're you're directing the witness here, Keith. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't I don't know. I, I for the purposes of this film, it's it's effective. But I guess that's it's a good point that you're not necessarily setting up the series as um, something that can continue onto m- multiple films um, because once you once you lose this obsession you know where, where you kind of go from there so yeah, it's a good point i mean it's the same pretty much the same impulse that led to burton killing off the joker at the end of this movie you know here's a, a character who survived as a villain for decades upon decades and you dispense with him thoroughly within the course of one film you know create him and destroy him and like that's a very blockbuster movie approach to a villain but it's it goes it flies in the face of everything that the comics do about you know setting up these endless clashes. And yeah, the Lego Batman movie fixes that up real good, doesn't it? <laughs> Guys, did you know as someone who I talked to on Twitter um informed me that Hugo Blick, the actor apparently hired for his uncanny ability to look like a young Jack Nicholson is now a successful TV show creator, uh most recently responsible for The Honorable Woman starring Maggie Gyllenhaal. 
Wow. Yeah. The trivia coming out of you tonight is uh, it's blowing my mind. I, I feel like I finally found my place on this podcast. The guy who looks up yeah. stuff. The guy who reads random stuff off of his uh, laptop. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure that was a thing that we needed or that the world <laughs> needed, but uh, to bring it to full circle, the Joker killed your parents. Sorry, oh, Keith. Oh, well. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll look at Get Out, another racially aware horror movie that gets a lot scarier than People Under the Stairs does, and addresses its humor in a very different way. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at Facebook.com slash Next Picture Show, and follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be picking the buckshot out of our dinners and getting Keith a nice raw steak he's earned. Someone to teach. The whole world is acting like a giant Howard Beach. I asked my man Victor what he used to do for fun. He said he learned to shoot a gun before the age of 21. Crime and abortion, all kinds of my distortion. This is very important, but just a little caution. And what you can do, that's a clue, and it's true. Yo, don't want a brand new sweater and make your life better. And do the right thing. Do the right thing. You got to do.